This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. And welcome to it. It's three minutes after one o'clock. Gorgeous, warm Saturday afternoon. Thanks for uh, for talking in and join us here for the next hour for the Disability Law Show. Uh, partner James Fireman here, of course. Sam Firu Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Armed and ready to take your questions. There's a couple different ways you can do that. Of course, you can uh, text us 71010 with any questions. We can read those out and uh, discuss or call 416-872-1010. Call the radio station. Lines are open we're ready to uh, to take those calls 416-872-1010 if you're calling for yourself or behalf of a friend or family member you can change the names it doesn't matter as long as you get the information that is required and james always at the ready to uh, to give you that we got a bunch of email already piling up james we're going to get through those some other questions as well but you always uh, start off with uh, you know a case of the day or a week that was something you've been working on pal what's uh, what's going on do i always do that i think Am so I well not, i'm gonna say 90 percent of the time well, okay, let's uh, keep a good thing going then. I do have one I would like to discuss. And Beauty. I bring it up more as insight for those who are in the disability process already and who are getting benefits. So I had a, a, a lady call me uh, about a potential claim. She's actually been cut off of this. She suffers from what is called postural tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. And this is a condition where the heart rate abnormally increases when you change position, sitting, standing, or vice versa. And so obviously in her occupation, if she has a job that requires that, it puts her at risk for fainting or for any number of different things. And so she went on disability and was approved and she got benefits for a few months, but genuinely wanted to return to work. and. Uh, worked on a return to work plan with her doctor's approval and in fact did return to work for several months and it was only part-time so she was still receiving some benefits all good so far Mm -hmm. the only thing is that part of her condition also which was unexplained and remains unexplained is that she had some issues with sitting for an extended period of time which is why she was really only able to work part-time had she not had an issue with sitting for extended periods of time, more than half an hour, she likely could have just been switched to uh, a job that was entirely sedentary, but that wasn't an option for her either because when she sits for any long period of time, she gets increasing numbness in her lower half. And the doctors don't really know why if it's related right. to the uh, postural tachycardia syndrome or something else. But this wasn't really the focus because her job didn't require her to sit for long periods of time, and they were able to find a way for her to get around it for a while. She was back at work for several months, but had an accident that was caused by her condition, frankly. She was getting up and she fainted and she injured her shoulder and that was that. It was pretty clear at that point that it was just too dangerous for her to be at work. And so she was back on benefits for a few months, but then her insurer cut her off saying that she could do a sedentary job. And so this gets back to that sitting tolerance issue, this issue that she has with sitting for more than 30 minutes or so. Now, this hadn't changed. Her condition hadn't changed in any particular way. But 
it wasn't really a focus for her. It wasn't something that she or her doctors were spending any time on because it wasn't especially relevant to what she was doing at the time or mm-hmm. the modified duty she was doing at her job. And so it wasn't right. something that she was complaining about to her doctor or that her doctor was actively treating her for. They had earlier done some tests and hadn't figured out what it was. And so that was sort of that. And her doctor wasn't really thinking about it either. And so when they cut her off and her and her doctor wrote a letter to the insurer, the doctor talked about her issues with, with changing positions, but not with her sitting tolerance. And so that wasn't something that was reinforced with the insurer. And so the insurer basically ignored it as a problem, which is actually kind of understandable in the circumstances because it wasn't something that at that point had been raised in over a year and it wasn't something that was talked about in the medical records. And so when I talked to her, she assured me that it hasn't changed in any way. She can't sit for more than 30 minutes. It just wasn't something that she was dealing with with her doctors. And so it is something where I'm quite confident I'm going to be able to help her, but she's going to need to double back to her doctors to make sure that her doctors are aware that this is still an issue for her. That is something that she is not able to do, that any um, potential return to work would have to include an accommodation for that inability to sit. And when you start looking at a situation where someone can't sit for more than 30 minutes, but they also can't get up and get down with any regularity, doesn't really leave anything, does it? And so the reality is she's not someone who's able to work, at least until her condition, the underlying issues have been addressed and that she can safely either sit for an extended period of time or switch positions, neither of which she can do. I bring all of this up because I want it to be instructive for anybody who is in the system right now, who's getting benefits and who has issues that aren't necessarily top of mind, but they are issues that might prevent you from doing something else. You have to make sure that this issue has either been fully addressed by your doctors and is you know something that is well documented to the point where no one sure could look at it and think that there is no longer an issue, or you have to make sure that it's something that you continue to bring up periodically with your doctors to see if there is any new possible treatment, therapy, medication, what have you, or at the very least that is simply recorded in the clinical notes that this continues to be an issue. Absent that, your insurer is going to just assume that it's no longer something that will restrict or limit your ability to go back to work. So keep that in mind. Oftentimes, it's not necessarily the things that are preventing you from doing the job that you have right now, but potentially other jobs that might be a fit for you after that too easy. So that is really what I wanted to share. I hope that cool. it's useful for those that are on claim. And by the way, uh, if you want to reach out to James and his team, you really should just to have a chat because it can be really confusing to uh, to get through this stuff. It's easy. one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca is the email address we use. want to get into our first email uh, for the show today. James from Manuel. Manuel says, guys, my sister has worked as a teacher for years. She developed anxiety and depression soon after COVID hit and with having to manage her isolation her health, her students, and then all the on and off remote learning. Her family doctor and psychiatrist supported her stay off work this past year, but now they're talking about supporting her to return to work, but not back into the classroom. Does the LTD insurer still need to pay her benefits in these circumstances? Can she hire a lawyer to fight this if she's part of a union? 
So I'll answer the last part first, because it is the most straightforward. So can she hire a lawyer to fight this if she's part of a union? Well, I can tell you certainly for teachers in Ontario, they're all part of a union, but all of them are able to hire a lawyer. I uh, have been hired by dozens and dozens of teachers in Ontario uh, that are unionized, and their collective bargaining agreement certainly uh, allows for outside counsel and to bring a claim against the insurer when a LTD claim has been denied. So not an issue, certainly, for teachers that are part of the union. It's also not an issue for, I would say, the majority of unionized employees in Ontario. There are some where the collective bargaining agreement between the union and the employer would preclude getting a, a private lawyer to get involved. You would have to go through the arbitration and grievance procedure in those situations. Those are more the exception than the rule, but if you're not sure whether or not you're allowed to, give us a call. If you've been denied by your insurer and you're part of a union and you don't know if you can bring a lawsuit and hire a lawyer, give us a call. We'll take a look at your collective bargaining agreement. We're not gonna charge you anything for figuring that out. And if we can help you, then we can discuss whether we can actually help you with the claim. So not an issue, um, certainly in terms of Manuel's sister or any other teachers, and frankly, for most unionized employees. Now, in terms of the actual issue uh, behind the denial, so Manuel's sister has been off for some period of time, but now her family doctor and psychiatrist are supporting her are supporting her returning to work. And so the question is, is this something that she is able to fight if the insurer is gonna force her back in that circumstance? It is much more difficult. The reality is when, as a disability lawyer, when we are approached by anyone who's been denied benefits and we are looking at whether it's something that we're gonna be retained on, the first thing we do is we take a look at whether or not they have the support of their doctors and therapists in order to stay off work. And in this case, it sounds as though her medical team is is encouraging her to return to work, albeit in a limited way. Uh, I think they, I think the Manuel suggested that uh, the support is to not go back in the classroom, but to do it virtually. Right. So there may be an issue there. There may be an issue as to whether or not a virtual uh, classroom or virtual setup is going to be available for a sister, and I don't know if that's going to be the case, and it may not. If it isn't, that's an accommodation issue, which is certainly an employment issue. Now, were, were she not a teacher, if she were not part of a union, it's something that our employment team would be right on and uh, would certainly be able to advise her whether or not, in the circumstances, the failure to accommodate is something that would give rise to a, a wrongful termination claim. In this particular case, because she's a teacher, because she's unionized, we wouldn't be able to get involved on the employment side. So for that particular issue, if her employer, if the school board wasn't prepared to accommodate, she would have to go through her union and potentially bring a grievance. It's not something that we have expertise in. Great clarification there, and uh, Natalie, appreciate you uh, um, uh, reaching out, by the way, or uh, Manuel brought me. Natalie, we'll get to you next. Thank you so much for sending your email along. You can do the same. we got lots more to go, and we got lots of time to do it. So uh, feel free. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Any other questions, there's a website, free, anonymous, called mydisabilityquestions.com. And the good old-fashioned phone to reach James and his very capable team, they're awesome, one 821 5900 But here and now, taking your calls as well, 416 416- 
866-872-1010. You have the text option as well, and that is 71010. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. You're listening to the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. It is one twenty. Thank you, and uh, for joining us. Welcome back to the show, Disability Law Show. James Fireman, partner, Sam Firu to Mark and LLP is your guy every week to get the information. Something piques your interest, or you have questions on your own, you want to have a lengthier conversation with James at a later date. That's uh, no problem. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the email address we pull from every week, so you can use that. Uh, but here and now, by the way, you can reach out and talk to us live, and that is four one. Six eight seven two ten ten here at the station and text seven ten ten as well. I want to move on to Natalie James uh, writes. I am receiving long term disability payments since two thousand three. They will continue until twenty thirty, and I'm being paid uh, eight eighty and change per month. They're offering to pay me a lump sum of fifty six thousand dollars. I'm not sure if I should accept this or ask for more. Please contact me. We're talking math here, so I'm useless to you, pal. What do you think? Okay, well, I've got this one covered for you. Good. <laughs> All right. So this happens not infrequently where an insurer uh, has someone on claim and the the person is clearly never going to be able to return to work. It's just clearly a permanent disability. There's not going to be any other occupation that they can do. And so they take a look at what lies ahead and they figure it out. What is their liability up until age 65? And that is when most policies are going to end. So they do the math on it and they figure out it's going to be X dollars and they're going to offer you X less something. They're not going to pay you out the full amount. They're going to do it in a way that makes it uh, interesting for them. And the question is, are they paying you enough to make it worth it? So I have a, a spreadsheet that I use that does these calculations very quickly for me. I just a bit input the variables and I figure it out. So I'm going to make a few assumptions here about Natalie. The first, I'm just going to assume a birthday in the middle of the year, July sure. 1st. And so I'm assuming that were she to remain on claim, she would continue getting benefits until July 1st, 2013. Uh, I'm also assuming that there is no issue that she's going to remain disabled from now until 65. And I'm going to assume that her benefits are not taxable. That is an issue that would impact on this, but I assume that it is not the case here. And I'll explain in a moment why that matters. So if we were to make all of those assumptions, based on what she's told us, that she's getting $880.67 per month from now through July 1, of 2030, that would be $83,000 and change on a straight line calculation. However, she's not entitled to get that in a lump sum right now. If she were to stay on claim, she would get that at $880 a month, every month for the next seven and a half, eight years. And so that's obviously worth less than getting a lump sum of the same amount now. And so in order to figure out what that would be worth in today's dollars, What you can do, what we typically do, is we apply a discount rate to account for inflation. So we say, okay, let's discount this by X percent and see what that would be in today's dollars. Typically, we use something like 
in you know if you're going back a year or more one or two percent but these days four percent is probably closer to the truth and maybe higher but looking at a four percent discount rate and i don't want to get too too in the weeds in the map but at a four percent discount rate that makes the value of all those payments of 880 dollars per month through july of 2030 that would value it at about seventy thousand dollars so okay. they're offering 56 up front right now it's worth seventy thousand in today's dollars but you have no way of getting it right now so is this a fair offer well maybe it's not a terrible yeah. offer i mean you're you're giving up something for sure you know that's fourteen thousand dollars that you're giving up but you're getting all the money now you're getting now you can do yeah. with it what you like you can invest it and probably earn something more than the four percent discount rate that i've applied uh, so there is some value to that, especially if you're in a particularly difficult financial situation. And it's really just a question of the individual's preference, whether Natalie would prefer to take a little bit less and get it all now, not have to deal with the insurer anymore, uh, be able to do with it what she likes, or if she's comfortable getting the $880 a month and riding it out. She will get more if she does it that way. But getting more isn't always going to be the best thing for everybody. And that is what I tell my clients. It's not always just about how are you going to get the most money. It's also about when are you going to get it and what are you going to have to deal with in the meantime in order to get it. And so when you look at all the factors, I can't tell you it's you know something that she should or shouldn't do. It's something that isn't a terrible offer. It's at least worth considering. Um, and, you know, there's no risk involved in it in the sense that you're not worrying about the insurer cutting you off. The other, the other thing that is worth mentioning is that it's paying entirely upfront now. The risk going the other way for the insurer is the risk that you could potentially die before you turn 65. Now, I'm assuming that right. Natalie's condition isn't, a, you know, a terminal condition and that she's otherwise reasonably healthy. So there's no reason to believe she's at any heightened risk for an early death. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too, gotcha. too grim here. But it's always a possibility, and were she to pass away before turning 65, the insurer would not be required to continue to pay benefits. So from that perspective, there's you know it's even closer to a reasonable offer than even the way I had assessed it before. Now, when I was going through that, I also mentioned that one of the issues was whether or not the policy was taxable. So some long-term yes. disability policies are taxable, others are not. This one I'm assuming was not, because if it were taxable, this would actually be an exceptional offer, and I'll explain why. For a taxable policy, what happens is, whatever your monthly benefit is, you are then immediately, that, that tax portion is deducted, paid directly to the CRA. So it isn't something that you're ever thinking about. When you have a lump sum settlement with an insurance company, something different happens. So on a lump okay. sum settlement, only the portion of the settlement that is attributable to benefits owing at that point in time is taxable. And in Natalie's case, because they're offering her for her future benefits, they've paid her up to date, none of it is for past benefits. And so all of the 56,000 that they're offering would be non-taxable. Whereas if she were to stay on benefits for, on claim for, for until she's 65, she's gonna be getting a lot less than the 70,000 that I had calculated before. That's gonna be reduced by tax. And so 
the reality is, if that were the case, if this is a taxable policy, it's almost certainly a very good deal for them. So it really depends on all of those issues. I assume that's not the case, because if it were a taxable policy, no doubt uh, her insurer would be well aware of this and would be taking advantage of that fact and explaining to her that, you know, she wouldn't actually be getting the full amount, it would be a lot less. And so their offer would be reduced accordingly, because if Natalie's going to get the benefit, they also want to get part of that benefit, too. That is, so that's why I've assumed it's a non-taxable policy. I'm worried that I might be getting a little too far into the weeds on the math here. But the point of all of this, for, for those listening, is, first of all, you know, it, it is certainly a possibility to get a lump sum settlement if you are on claim and you have a, uh, a, a disability that's permanent, that your insurer is not really challenging you on it. If you are presented with an offer by your insurer, give us a call. I certainly have done consultations for people many, many times as to whether or not a lump sum offer was a good deal or not. Um, usually it's something that only takes me a few minutes to assess to run through the calculator. And there are even some insurers, Sun Life for one, who will often uh, provide anyone that they make a lump sum offer to with a with paid consultation. So they'll say, you can go hire a lawyer and they'll give you, I think, one or two hours worth of, of uh, consultation. We'll cover the fees for one to two hour consultation to get independent legal advice as to whether or not their offer is a good. And so if you're in that situation, by all means, give us a call. We're happy to take a look at it and provide you with our advice. Yeah, I know it's interesting. It really, uh, it really kind of makes you think. And I know that answer is going to make Natalie think too, James. Because I was thinking off the top, all fifty six. But if she stayed on for seven eight years, it would be like two hundred. Like it's not even, not even a question. But after you've gone through that bit of math, and it's, it's that's kind of a tough call. I mean, I'm not Natalie. We're not sure of her particular, you know, situation as a person. But mm, it doesn't seem that bad an offer. It actually seems pretty good. It, I mean, it depends on her circumstances. If she is otherwise yeah. financially secure and it's not going to matter to her one way or the other, she may well just say, whatever, I'll just stay on claim. It doesn't matter to me. But for other people, yeah. uh, it does a lot of good to get that money up front and it would be preferable for them. That's why we do the show. You gotta, you know, clear the air and figure things out. If you want to send us an email, you can do so. That is help at disabilityrights.ca, Texas seven ten ten to do so, or do like Natalie did, or call four one six eight seven two ten ten, and reaching James otherwise one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. We'll continue more disability law show is on the way. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network. Welcome back to the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Reaching out anytime to James Fireman Partners, Sam Firu to Mark and LLP. That is one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca and another website for you to ask questions anonymously. And free of charge would be mydisabilityquestions.com. But here and now, text us 71010. Call us here at the station 416 872 1010. Got a text just came in. Uh, James, I'll read it to you. No name, but it's a good question. It says, If I was injured at work and now have permanent restrictions due to my injury does this qualify as having a disability so first you have to think about the definition of disability under the policy and so the definition is whether you have a condition an injury or an impairment that prevents you from doing your own occupation in the first two years 
So if you have permanent restrictions that might qualify as a disability under the policy, it might not. It depends on the extent of the restrictions and whether those restrictions prevent you from being able to do your own occupation. And that is really a fact-driven exercise to determine whether or not it would qualify. It, you know, it could well be a situation where you have an insurer that says it's not, but I might disagree with what that insurer says. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that would depend on what the medical evidence says. But this is probably a little bit more of an academic exercise, to be quite honest, because if you're injured at work, for the vast majority of people in Ontario, it means that you're going to bring a WSIB claim. And if you bring a WSIB claim as a result of an injury at work, and if you're successful, in other words, if you can show that you can't return to work because of the injury and you're paid your uh, benefits under, under WSIB, in almost all cases, those WSIB benefits would be greater than the disability benefits under virtually any LTD policy. And the LTD insurers invariably have language in the policy that entitles them to offset any money you receive from WSIB. And so if you're getting... I think it's typically something like 90% from WSIB. Even if you're approved for disability benefits, you would still be getting $0 a month because the WSIB would completely offset it. Now, there, I suppose, are situations where uh, there might be some reason to continue to claim. And let me just talk about that for a second. First of all, uh, there could be a dispute as to whether the injury actually happened at work. That's obviously an issue for WSIB, not an issue for LTD. Uh, for LTD, if you're disabled, you're disabled. doesn't matter where that comes from, except if it was at work and WSIB ought to be involved. But if WSIB declines the claim, then certainly you would want to pursue it through the LTD. Also, though, you know, you may not be covered for WSIB. There are some workers that are not. I don't want to get into the ones that should be and shouldn't be, but some workers simply do not have WSIB coverage. And if you don't, then obviously it's going to be an issue as to whether you qualify under the LP policy. But there's also a third reason, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So let's say that it, you are injured at work and that you are someone who actually has access to WSIB. You may be thinking, okay, well, there's not a whole lot of point in applying for LTD benefits if I'm entitled to WSIB, or even more so if you've actually been approved for WSIB. Well, I would question that logic because WSIB is not going to guarantee you that they're going to pay you forever. At some point, WSIB may decide that you're no longer entitled to those WSIB benefits. And I, I'm not a WSIB lawyer. I don't have expertise in that. But I certainly am well aware that WSIB will not pay you in perpetuity if they don't think you continue to be disabled. If you disagree, it is much better for you to be approved for LTD benefits, even where WSIB is paying you, so that if WSIB were to cut you off, you would still be able to pursue your LTD benefits from your insurer. Now, your insurer might also take the position that you're no longer disabled at the same time the WSIB says you're not disabled. But it is better for you to have two sources to pursue if you're not getting paid than it is to have only one. Now, are you going to bring a lawsuit if you are approved for WSIB and you get denied for LTD and you wouldn't be getting any benefits anyway? Probably not. 
but it is certainly worth applying for LTD, even if you're approved for WSA, because it is much better to at least be nominally on claim, even if you're getting zero dollars, so that if you need to get benefits from somewhere else, you have the ability to that was the question I, I thought was interesting. You said, you know, applying for LTD anyway, because previously said, you know, if WSIB is paying up to 90%, you're not get, you're getting $0 anyway. But you're saying at least go through the turnstile and have it at the ready if WSIB decides to stop paying you, pretty much? Yeah, for sure. That's exactly what I'm saying. Wow. Um, again, I, if you're getting your full WSIB and your insurer denies you the LTD um, in the sense that they say that you're not qualified, that you don't meet the definition of disabled under the policy. Question how far you're going to argue that. I know I always say, don't bother appealing. I might in that circumstance, because it isn't something that you're going to hire a lawyer for if you're already getting WSIB and what you're arguing about is, at least in the moment, an academic argument. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to want to keep your uh, LTD alive, it may make sense in those circumstances to appeal and just to keep it alive at least within the two years from the initial denial of your benefits. Want to get on to another email here? Time to go. Uh, Romy says, I have been on disability since October 2020. I was told I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD. My doctor has kept me off work, and the insurance company says payments are not being made until I go on an IME, uh, independent medical examination, which I have no problem doing at all. I'm really anxious because I'm worried they will cut me off completely. I never in a million years expected to feel this way. It is the hardest thing besides almost losing my son that I have ever had to deal with. I'm still dealing with his chronic illness. He had a transplant in October and is having grand mal seizures and has memory loss. They're trying to figure out why I relive so much of what happened because it all started with a different strain of coronavirus. Every time I see someone on TV and ICU or hear about it, I break down. I'm just scared, to be honest, and worried that the insurance company won't support me. What do you think, James? Well, Romy, I mean, first of all, my, my heart goes out to you, and it certainly does for any parents that are in this kind of a situation. It's obviously really difficult to deal with, and especially when it feels like you don't have the support of your insurance company. If your insurer is telling you that you have to go through an IME, unfortunately, an independent medical evaluation, unfortunately, that is something that you'll have to submit to. And it's quite possible that they may send you to a doctor who is going to be biased, that isn't going to give you a fair shake. That's possible. But that's not always the case. I actually find in a lot of independent medical evaluations, even the ones hired by insurers, they get to the right end result when it's pretty clear. And given the circumstances that you're dealing with, it seems like it should be pretty clear to anyone who is assessing your mental health that there is an awful lot that you're dealing with. And mental health is largely a subjective evaluation. And when you have you know, environmental issues, things in your environment that you're dealing with, external things that you are dealing with that are clearly very difficult, it would be pretty unusual for that not to be accounted for in somebody who's qualified to provide a medical evaluation. Not impossible, but I'd be pretty surprised. And in the event that the independent medical evaluation did not support your continued disability, despite the fact that your treating doctors clearly continue to, then we would bring a claim. It's as simple as that. That's not something I would have to think twice about whether or not we could get involved. 
very clearly it's something that if you're treating doctors continue to support you, then it's something that we would absolutely challenge the insurer on. And frankly, I would have very little doubt that we would be very successful. And with that, guys, let's take a, a short break. Lots more to get through, a few more emails, and you still got time to send us a text as well. 71010 is the way you do that. And to reach out to James afterwards, by the way, it's uh, not difficult, right? one 821 5900 That email address we use every show is help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. More of the Disability Law Show is coming up. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network, and you're listening to the Disability Law Show. All right, welcome back. A few minutes to go. You still got some time to reach out here on the phone if you wish. 416-872-1010. Text as well, 71010. But during, before, and after the show, anytime, reaching out to James Fireman, uh, San Firu to Market LLP. You can do so. That is help at disabilityrights.ca and one 821 5900. Janko is up next with his email. James says, I have a rare and serious heart condition that came on suddenly about seven or eight years ago. Turns out I had a number of mild heart attacks that I wasn't even aware of, and my cardiologist has been adamant that I stop working in my physical job. Over the years, I went back to work anyway, but each time I stopped working again because of my heart. I even tried doing office duties for a while, but any sort of stress gets my heart going. I get dizzy, lose my breath, and rush to the ER. The insurance company knows all this, but they cut me off anyway at the two-year mark because my heart condition is stable. Both my cardiologist and family doctor clearly stated to the insurance company that I should not be working at all. CPP Disability even accepted me. Uh, If I'm off work to prevent a heart attack, isn't this reason enough? Hell yes. I mean, yeah, it is. Jenko, um, this is absolutely not a valid denial of your benefits um, at the two-year mark. Let's you know break this down a little bit and you know provide, I suppose, a little bit more context. But this isn't a tough call here. You've clearly done everything possible to do what you can to see if there is a way for you to return to work. Obviously, you can't do a physical job, but that's not what you were doing at the point where you went on disability. As Jenko has written in, he had moved into a sedentary role. He was working in an office. Uh, I assume he was sitting down and still wasn't able to do it. He was getting conditions related to his heart, he was symptoms related to his heart. He would have uh, the, the blood pressure would go, go up, he would get dizzy, lose his breath. And so clearly he is not capable of even being in a sedentary position. That's not something he's able to do. And his insurer didn't challenge that for two years. I suspect the basis for the denial at the two year mark is on the, is because there's a notation that his heart condition is stable. Now, stable is, I suppose, all other things being equal, positive. It does, at the very least, mean that his condition is not getting worse. But keep in mind, over the two years they've been paying him benefits, he has not been working. And I am going to assume that on doctor's orders, Janko has also been doing what he can to avoid other stressful situations and to avoid any type of heavy physical activity. And so the fact that now that he is out of the workforce, 
his condition has stabilized, not improved, but stabilized, mm-hmm. is a positive thing, but that doesn't mean that he's now ready to go back to work. I am not surprised if the insurer has taken that out of context and suggested as though he's now okay because his condition is stable. Clearly, given that his cardiologist and family doctors continue to say that he can't go back to work, that's not actually the case. Clearly, because CPP disability, which has a more onerous test than the LPD, because CPP disability is saying that he is disabled, that he has a severe and permanent impairment, uh, or yeah, severe permanent impairment, that he's not able to go back to work and they're paying his, his benefits. Clearly, he is entitled to continue to get his long-term disability benefits paid. So yeah, Janko, it's a long way of saying what I said right at the start. You're absolutely entitled to your ongoing benefits past that two-year mark. And for those listening that are unaware of why this two-year mark is interesting or why this is the point that the insurer is changing their mind, so to speak, it's because it's what we refer to as the change of definition mark. Mm-hmm. Once you've been on claim for two years, you've been getting benefits for two years, the test under any policy or virtually any policy is going to change from whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing your own occupation into whether you have a disability that prevents you from doing any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. Now, I suspect in the present case, because Django had, Django had been working in a sedentary environment prior to going on his most recent leave, I suspect that that is actually, the sedentary job is actually the comparator here. And so that is the own occupation that they've already agreed he can't do for the last two years. But even if it wasn't, even if the own occupation was based on his original physical job, so what? It doesn't matter. It's very clear that there isn't a job he's able to do. And so in this any occupation period where the test changes to whether you are disabled from any occupation you're qualified for by training, education, or experience, it doesn't actually change the calculus as far as Janko is concerned. He is still entitled to continue to receive disability benefits. That's just really, really clear. So if they maintain their position, despite what your cardiologists and family doctors are saying, is absolutely something that we can start a claim for you. Janko, appreciate you reaching out. Here's the phone number you want to have a further chat, one 821 There are times, uh, James, where some insurance companies will prepay LTD benefits for a period of time. Uh, I know you've mentioned three, maybe six months. If you're in that situation, do you have to wait till the end of that prepay to start a, a legal claim, or you can go uh, right at it? Yeah, so you can go right at it. Let me just provide some context here. So when insurers are deciding that they're going to terminate benefits, it's unusual that they do it without any notice at all. I've seen it happen, but more often than not, what will happen is they will tell you that they are making the determination. Often it's at that two-year mark that we're just talking. Often it's at that change of definition mark. But what they'll typically do is before that two-year mark, maybe after 18 months, they'll start looking at whether or not there is a basis for them to say that you're not disabled at that two-year And they'll do uh, an evaluation of your training, education, and experience, and they'll run you through a work hardening program so that they can justify their decision. 
but they'll often let you know in advance that they are going to be cutting you off. And in some situations, they'll even pay you the remaining benefits up front. So they'll say, we're sorry to advise that we've uh, that your benefits will be cut off on you know uh, November 30th. Uh, because we've made this determination that you'll no longer meet the definition, here are your next three months of benefits in advance. And so to answer your question very simply, you don't have to wait a moment. As soon as they have confirmed for you that they have made a decision to cut off your benefits, whether it's at that point in time, whether it's in the past, or whether it's at some point in the future, if they have told you, not that they're considering it, but that they actually are going to stop paying your benefits, then you can bring the claim right then and there. And that's the point where you give us a call and we start the claim. And the idea is the sooner we start the legal claim to challenge their decision, the sooner we're going to get to a resolution. There's no benefit in waiting until that period has passed to start the legal claim. Because if you do, all it means is you're going to delay the resolution and it's going to take you longer before you get what you're entitled in your pocket. That is a good way to wrap it up for another Saturday. Appreciate you uh, tuning in and uh, sending in your comments and emails as well. You can do more now that we're done, and James will get to them, put to one of his crew on it as well. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address again. One final time. Any other questions, mydisabilityquestions.com. Free and anonymous for you to fill that out. And the phone call, 1-855-821-5900. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show. This is the Bell Talk Radio Network.